John chapter 18. We want to read again verses 1 through 9. John chapter 18 verses 1 through 9 this morning and then do a little bit of a review and finish up this portion of Scripture before we move to the next. John chapter 18 beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the book Kidron where was a garden into which He entered and His disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you, that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which He spake of them which Thou gavest Me. I have lost none. John 18 opens with our Lord crossing the brook Kidron and ascending the Mount of Olives. He went there to fulfill every a thing and every purpose that had been written of him in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. And he is, we are seeing that fulfillment of all things, even beginning here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went to the Mount of Olives because it was a place known to Judas Iscariot. John's focus in his gospel written about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is God. That's how John's gospel opens up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how it opens. And so the focus from verse 1 through the closing of this gospel is Jesus Christ is God. He is God. He doesn't focus on the prayer. He doesn't focus on the drops of blood. He doesn't focus on the agony of soul. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but not John. And so the focus of this gospel is that Jesus Christ is God. And as God, according to verse 4, He knows all things. He knows that Judas will come to this very place that evening, to that very place that evening to betray Him. He knows these things. And as I've said now for three weeks, I'll repeat it again this week, always remember two very important things regarding what is going on from chapter 18 to chapter 21. Always remember two things. Number one, the Lord is always in complete control of all events, in all places, at all times. The Lord is always in complete control of all events, 
at all places, at all times. That's the first thing that you keep in focus and keep in mind and heart. And then you look at what is going on in this text and you see that every event associated with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is under His complete control. God has not lost control of the situation. I can say that about myself in certain things. Whoa, I've lost control of this. I need to get a better handle on this, but not God. God never has lost control of a situation. The second thing is this, that our Lord freely and willingly offered Himself as God's only acceptable sacrifice. Beginning here in the Garden of Eden, all the events that will take place from chapters 18 through 21 take place on purpose. On purpose. So that the Lord might fulfill everything necessary that is required of Him to save His people from their sins. Everything that is happening has, is coming to a culmination of one purpose. Save His people from their sins. It begins here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Judas led the crowd to the Garden of Gethsemane that evening, he was there with about 500 Roman soldiers. He was there with a multitude of religious leaders of Israel. That crowd, including Judas, represented the, every aspect of the world's power, as I said last Lord's Day. The 500 Roman soldiers represented the power of the world's government. Rome ruled the world. When Roman soldiers showed up, it represented the power of the world's government. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders of Israel represented the power of false religion. Israel's religion had become false. And they represent the power of that false religion. Judas, the scripture says, stood with the world's political power and stood with Israel's false religion. And the scripture goes on to say because he was possessed by Satan. John 13 in verse 27 tells us that Satan entered into Judas. So all three of the world's power are present in the Garden of Gethsemane in, uh, with Judas Iscariot. The political power, the religious power, and the powers of darkness are present in Judas Iscariot. They all three come and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. All three of them are there. When they came seeking, our Lord Jesus Christ went forth to meet them. The whole crowd that evening and everyone present is coming into the garden and as they are coming in, our Lord is coming to meet them. He went forth to meet them. And in that moment, as the powers of the world stand in the presence of the Almighty, He says to them, who are you seeking? And they say that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And He spoke and manifest to them, He's not just a man or just one of Israel's prophets, but He is God manifest in the flesh. He says to them, I am. I said last week that he is italicized because it's not actually in the Greek. It is implied. It is there. I am the one who is the I am. 
And so the translators put it there. It wasn't a mistake. It's not correcting anything. It's just part of the flow of the English language. But in the Greek, it is I am. And that harkens back to the statement in Exodus chapter 3 where God says to the nation of Israel and to Moses, go tell the nation of Israel, I am has sent you. I am has sent you. When He revealed Himself as I am, He did so using that name that defines Him as the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, almighty God. Put those statements together. Eternal, never having a beginning, never having an end. Self-sufficient, needing no help. Self-existing. God is the only one that exists in Himself. We exist because of God. God exists in Himself. And Almighty. All wrapped up in that two words, I am. I am. When the Lord Jesus spoke the words, I am, the whole crowd, the whole group who had come with lanterns and torches and weapons against Him fell down. The whole of them. More than 500, perhaps coming up to 600 individuals gathered at the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane that evening and they all fell down when He said the words, I am. When they fell down at the expression of His name, I am, it was a demonstration of the Lord's full power and control over the whole situation that evening. In fact, His demonstration of His full power and and demonstration of His control over all the events that will transpire all the way to His ascending, taking His place upon His throne in glory. When He fell down, He was teaching us three things. He needed no help to overcome His enemies. Number one, God needs no help to overcome His enemies. Number two, He was not apprehended by the power, that any power that was greater than Himself. Though upwards of 600 people are standing before Him, they cannot apprehend the Son of God. They have no power to do so. He has just spoken two words and they have fallen down before Him. Number three, that it may be known to all that He freely and willingly surrendered Himself to those who came seeking for Him. In John chapter 10, He had already told His disciples and He had already told those that were following Him that no man taketh my life from me. John 10, 18. But I lay it down of Myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up. This commandment I have received of my Father. No man is taking anything away from Jesus Christ. He freely and willingly gave Himself to into the hands of this crowd. That brings us up to verse 7 where the Scripture says, Then asked He them again, Whom seek ye? And they said again, Jesus of Nazareth. Having fallen down, having experienced the power of God over their bodies, they still asked for Jesus of Nazareth. They had experienced their own helplessness as they stood before the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. 
their experience should have convinced them that they had no power over the one who was standing in front of them. They rise back up and he asks again, whom do you seek? They answer exactly the same way. Why is that? Part of the reason is that sinners may see the power of God on a daily basis and never submit themselves to God for mercy. Never submit themselves to God for forgiveness. Never seek from Him forgiveness. These are men who have come with murder in their heart into the Garden of Gethsemane. He had, God has stood before them and said, I am. And these are all Jews. Well, they're not all Jews. These are Jews and Gentiles together and they had fallen down before the Lord Jesus Christ. And rising back up again, he asked, who are you looking for? <laughs> Paraphrasing. <laughs> Whom seek ye? And they should have trembled in their boots, as it were. They should have stood before him trembling. Lord, have mercy upon us for coming in and intruding into this place. No, 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 no. No. And guys, God pulls back the veil of the human heart. They have just experienced a miracle that cannot be explained by anything except God's Word was so powerful that it had just knocked them down. And they still ask the same. Besides experiencing the power of God and His Word, they experienced the goodness of the One before whom they stood. He had not hurt them. He had not killed them. They had fallen down when He spoke His Word, but they had gotten back up again. We have no record in any of the Scriptures that any of them were harmed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter pulls a, a sword and whacks off the ear of one of them and the Lord repairs that. Peter and his zeal to defend God. And the Lord touches and heals the man. Not one person had came into that garden whose intent was to murder, to capture and murder the Son of God that night was harmed by God. Not one. The Scriptures teach us that God is good. And in a demonstration of His goodness here is in seen in the second time that they are asked this question. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies over all His works. Whether you're saved or lost, whether you are His enemy or not, He is good to you. Life and breath and all things have been given to you on a daily basis. Mercy has come from the good hand of God toward you, even as there's this resistance of heart toward Him. God is good to all. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 5, Moses, as as Israel is about to go into the, the land of Canaan, Moses says to them, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers, uh, uh, into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good. As God brings Israel into the land, and they carry with them their, own, their idols, they have not yet removed their idols. They have spent a whole generation uncircumcised. They have violated the covenant of God. And they come into the land and before they can go any further, they are circumcised, brought into a covenant relationship with God again. They have to get rid of their idols as they're traveling. 
And God is good to them. And the promise of God to that generation of Israel, uh, Israelites as they come into the land as He's defeating their enemies is that I'm going to do you good. That's the God of the Scriptures. That's the God of the Scriptures. In the book of Acts chapter 10, in verse 38, Peter is speaking. And uh, he says to those to whom he is speaking, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with a holy ghost and with power who went about doing good. Acts 10, verse 38. The whole testimony of Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is God does good to men on the earth. He shows Himself to be good to them. And Paul argues in Romans chapter 2 that the goodness of God ought to lead sinners to repentance. But these who had fallen down, not hurt or harmed in any way, not killed, now stand back up. And they had come to take Him to His death. They had, he had revealed that He could have put them to death by the spoken word. And after they had fallen down, He had given them, or continued to give them life and breath and all things. Before that, as they were born, He had brought them life and breath and all things. As they come into the garden that night with lanterns and torches and, and, and weapons, He gives them life and breath and all things. As they fall before the Almighty at His spoken word, and rise back up. They rise breathing His air and life in their body, sustained by God Himself. And yet they plan to take His. Our Lord had revealed His true name to them. He had revealed His true self to them. And yet when asked the second time, Whom seek ye? They do not respond. We're seeking the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, almighty God. No, 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 no. No, no, no. They cannot say that. They cannot say, we're seeking I Am. No. Who are you seeking? Well, we're, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. That carpenter's son. That one that some say is a prophet. That's who we're looking for. The display of the power of God over their life did not persuade them of the reality of who it was that was standing before them. We see the amazing blindness and darkness that is upon men in this situation as it develops before us. They remained, remained blind and deaf and unaware of who it was they were standing before, even though they had just fallen down at the power of His Word. What are we to learn from that? We're to learn, brethren, that the display of the power of God, even in miracles before men, is not what it's going to take to change their hearts. Their hearts had not been changed by the experience they remain hard-hearted and set upon an evil purpose of taking the Lord Jesus Christ so that He might be killed. Learn from this that the goodness of God 
had not brought them to repentance. It should have. They should have stood there in awe and in dismay over what had just taken place. But as they rose from the ground, they rose with the same intent and purpose to take captive the Son of God and bring Him before Pilate so that He might be killed. We see the same truth revealed in the last judgment of God when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the world. Go with me because I want you to see this over to the book of Revelation. And I want you to see in chapter 6 these words. In the time when our Lord will return to bring judgment upon the earth, to separate His sheep on His right hand and His go- and the goats on His left. At that moment when He returns to bring judgment and the heavens and the earth, the Scripture says, flee before Him and there was no place found for them. At that moment when He sits as judge of all the world. Revelation in chapter 6 sort of pulls back the curtain of what is going on during those times. In verse 15 we read, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us, verse 16 says, Hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, Revelation 6, 17. For the great day of His wrath is come. And who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? They know, they, they understand the day of God's wrath and judgment is come. And instead of falling down and repenting and crying out for mercy, they look for a rock to hide under. To cave to hide themselves from Him from he who is omniscient, who knows all things. They know the situation. And they still do not submit themselves to Him. He had told them who He was, and when asked the second time, whom seek ye, they remained ignorant or defiant, not sure which. Uh, saying that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. In this, we see over and over again that sinners cannot be persuaded by outward evidences or miracles as to who Jesus Christ is or their need of a Savior. Jesus had already said in John chapter 6, in verse 36, but I said unto you, speaking to the Jews, some perhaps of this same crowd that had come that night, He said unto them that you have also seen me and believe not. They had seen him. They knew of his birth. They knew of his upbringing. Some of them were there at his baptism when the heavens opened. And God spoke, this is my son. And some of them were there when he performed miracles. They had seen the blind come to see. They had seen lepers healed. They had seen the lame walk. They'd seen sick people healed and they'd seen demon-possessed people delivered. And the fame of Him had spread through all of Israel. And they had come, some of them, to see what He might do. And as He taught them, they were gathered around and 
There was no food, and he fed them. 5,000 men plus women and children on one occasion. 4,000 men plus women and children on another occasion. And all of these testimonies had been before them, and they had seen him. And in John chapter 6, he says, You have seen me, and you believe not. Later on, as his ministry progressed, in John chapter 12, in verse 37, we read, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Now, we're not talking about a miracle here that some man might be able to perform or might not be able to perform. We're talking about the Son of God, God Himself performing miracles before them, authentic miracles, not some that are said to be that are not, but genuine miracles. That which God alone can do. And He had done that. And they had seen it with their own eyes. And yet they believed not on Him. Now some of them that had seen all these things during His earthly ministry gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they had seen the whole crowd and been experienced the whole crowd falling down and they stand up and He asked them, Whom seek ye? And they cannot, they cannot say, Jesus the Son of God. They cannot say it. It is not in their heart. They do not like to retain God in their heart. And so Jesus of Nazareth comes out of their mouth again. The only thing, brethren, that can turn a sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ is the mighty power of God's grace working in the heart. That's the only thing. And if you're here this morning without Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says to you to repent and come to Him. He will not cast you out. But no amount of physical evidence, no amount of genuine miracles performed before you is going to convince you. You need to be convinced that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins. And He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. It is God working in the heart of the sinner, not externally, but internally, that brings the sinner to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says about this. Romans in chapter 10. Verse 9, 10, and 13. Listen as I read. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart. You see, it's not, not about believing the facts in the head, but in the heart, where the heart has been changed. Believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Thou shalt be saved. God will save you from your sins. The heart is involved in this matter of salvation as God working in the heart turns you to His Son, the Savior. Verse 10, For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do we call? What words do we use? Well, you use the words that are in your heart. Whatever it is that is there. Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, remember me. Whatever it is that is in your heart, you use those words and you come to God. Take with you words, the prophet said, and come unto the Lord and He will have mercy upon you. It's God 
from the heart that you believe. And then He forgives and saves you from your sin. These people had been knocked down. They had seen the miracles of God. And still they were not convinced. And so oftentimes when I'm talking to people, I usually ask a question similar to this. Not the same question, of course, but is there something in your heart that says, I want to be forgiven? And if there is, then the only one who can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And no amount of external experiences is going to change that heart. Only He can do that. And so, that brings us to verse 8. They they have been knocked down. They stand up again. He asks them that question, Whom do you seek? And they once again say, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, Jesus answered them, I have told you that I am. I have told you. And He says it again. Now, put yourself in the crowd for a moment. (laughs) Those two words just knocked us off our feet. Nothing happened. I've told you, I am. And then he says these words, If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. What do we see here? What can we learn? Our Lord responds in exactly the same manner as He did in the beginning. His enemies do not change their intent in apprehended the Lord Jesus Christ. When they come, they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And He does not change His response. I am is the response. He says exactly the same words. But this time, They do not fall down. What is the difference? What is the difference? The first thing, our Lord adds two responses to their questions. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. The first one is, I am. What's the difference between that and what has just gotten what he had just said in the previous verse? The difference is this. When He spoke that time, He withheld His power from His words. Oh, and how many times have you picked up the Scriptures to read and it's just words. And it doesn't minister to the heart or to the soul. And something's missing. Well, you said I read it yesterday and I just, it warmed my heart. It brought tears to my eyes. It helped me. It brought joy to my soul. It was just yesterday that I sat in the same place with the same book and the same cup of coffee. And yesterday it was fresh and it was real and it was good. And today I'm sitting here and it's, it's, it's words on a book, on a page. What's wrong? Well, you might want to search the heart and plead with God. Take His Word and help you with it. Take His Word and help you with it. He says exactly the same two words and nothing happens. Why? Because He withheld His power from His Word. They stand before Him. They're not shaking. They're not trembling. 
They're completely convinced they have a, a handle on the circumstance before them. He says exactly the same two words. And they're convinced we got him now. This demonstrates to us why some hear the Word of God and never change. And never change. Unless the power of God attends the Word of God in your soul, you will not change. And so the heart cry is, Oh God, help me. Don't leave me to myself. Don't leave me with all of my understanding, with all of my education, with all of my knowledge, because it's nothing unless you help me. Unless you minister to my heart. That's what we're seeing. But there is a second response. And this time he adds the words, I told you I am He. And if, if He says there in... Um, let me get back to John's Gospel here. He says there in John 18, I told you that I am He. And um, if therefore you seek Me, let these go their way. Now He adds this command. Let these go their way. Now, to understand what's going on here, you've got to go back. Remember what I said. Always remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is in absolute control of the situation. Alright? He now says, let these go their way. This is a command. He is not asking them for permission that His disciples might leave first. He's not asking them for permission. This is God standing before this crowd. This is God and when He speaks, He's speaking not as a pretty please, would you let them go? I'll go with you if you let them go. No, no, He's not negotiating. He simply makes a statement. You're looking for Me? I'm Him. Let these go. Understanding that now, we have a crowd of five, six hundred people standing here with weapons, they could have overcome the eleven, physically speaking. They walk out of that garden free. They walk out of that garden free. Peter and John follow him to the judgment hall that night. But they walk out free. Keep that in mind as you see this developing. He is in absolute control of this situation. Nothing that happened that day happened without divine permission. In response to His command, the crowd allows the disciples to flee, though John and Peter follow Him. Verse 9. That the saying might be filled which, you, which He spake of them which Thou hast given Me. I have lost none. These are words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ earlier in His ministry. First in John 6 and verse 39. John 6 and verse 39 He says, And this is the Father's will of which, which has sent Me, that of all which He hath given Me I should lose nothing. Everything given to him by the Father, he loses. He does not lose. He keeps control of. He protects. He mentions again in John 17 and verse 12 in his prayer, Those thou gavest me I have kept. And none of them are lost but the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. None are lost but Judas who from the beginning 
was the devil. Our Lord's command to let His disciples go free teaches us four things. And with these four thoughts, I'll close. First, His disciples, His children, are not destroyed, are not harmed because He is protecting them. Because He loves them. John 13, verse 1, Having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. They are with Him in the garden. This crowd has come to take them. They have weapons. They will fight to the death. And Jesus says, you let these go. And they walk out protected by Almighty God. Brethren, when you see this unfolding before, it should cause your heart to just sit in awe of God's power and control. And then bringing that to this day. As God watches over His children, as God provides for His children, however it looks to the world or however it looks to the religious world, as God watches over. These are 11 men against five, 600 men. <laughs> Peter pulls his sword. He's no match for this crowd. Christ said, put it up. And He walks out. He cares for them. He loves them. He protects them. He, he sees to their safety. He sees to their protection. God is watching over His people in the midst of a difficult situation. The second and third go together. The disciples cannot be put to death unless some believe that it was their death and His death that brought in Christianity. It is not by the death of the disciple that Christianity is brought in. It is not by the death of the disciple that sin is forgiven. It is not that way. Christ dies alone on Calvary's tree. He dies separated from His disciples and separated from His Father under the judgment of the Almighty. He bears their sin in their place. They are not to die. They cannot die. He must die in their place. He cannot let them die. He will not let them die. It must be seen for all eternity that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore the sin of His people alone and satisfied the justice of God alone. So that when a sinner comes to Him, it is not, this is what I've done for you, but this is what you have done for me. You have paid for all my sins and you have done it for me. And I can't add to that or take away from it. I can't be part of that. You did it for me. And so the disciples must be let go so that no one can say they are part of this. But secondly, they must be let go because their sin also must be paid for. And Jesus stands as a substitute for them as well as for us. These are men who will be apostles who will lay the foundation for churches all over the world. And people might think, oh, these are really holy men. But no, these are men that need their sins paid for. And these are men who sought forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ and found that He is able to forgive to the uttermost. And so they are free. The Lord laid on Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He laid it on Him. Paul says in Galatians, who gave Himself for our sins. 
according to the will of God. He did it Himself. Revelation 1.5 that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Not in the death of a martyr, but in His sacrifice at Calvary's cross. The Scripture bears testimony He must be taken out of that garden alone. He must go to Calvary alone. He must die and be laid alone in that sepulcher. And He must rise alone and ascend alone to take Himself to heaven and sit upon His throne to show to the whole world God satisfied the righteous demands. God's Son satisfied the righteous demands of His Father. And there is a fourth reason why they cannot die. They cannot be harmed that night. The fourth reason is this. His disciples can be put to death because their work is not finished. Their work on earth is not finished. Before He leaves this earth, He will say to this same group of men and others, you go into all the world. You preach the gospel to all the nations. You take this gospel message that I have taught you and you take it to the world. And they did. They spread out over the whole world so that Paul could write before the end of the first century that the gospel has gone into all the world. Who did that? It, first it was the eleven and then it was the churches and then they would send others and then it would, they would send others until the gospel went into the, all of the world. The gospel must spread to the nations. It cannot be rooted in Israel. It cannot be rooted in Jerusalem. And there we go to find out what God did. No, it will spread. And it will spread like wildfire. These are the men that began that process. They cannot die until their work is finished. They must carry the gospel to the ends of the world. They must establish and build up the Lord's churches. They must learn the truth of God's Word as it is open before them in the, in the next several uh, uh, tens and, and twenties of years as the New Testament is given to these men. And they must learn and then teach the churches the truth of God's Word. They must finish their life's calling before they are called home to glory. So the Apostle Paul could write in about 65 or so, 67 A.D. and said, I have finished my course. I have finished my course. Time for me now to go home. John won't die till 95 A.D. or so. Each one dying at the appointed time after they have finished what God had called them to do. They cannot die that night. They cannot be harmed. And so Jesus stands before this crowd of five or six hundred and says, I have told you I am. Let these go. Not a voice of argument. No resistance. Just done. Done because God said it. That's the God we serve. That's the God we love. That's the God we worship. That's the God that saves sinners from their sins. If He says to to you, your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. Past, present, future, all gone. Why? Because He is the one who has the power to do that. Not us. He has the power to do that. Let's pray together. Father,